Hey y'all, I'm your host Gabrielle. And I'm Alan. Welcome to the Eerie Touch, where every week we dive into all things murder, mystery, and paranormal. Today, I'm going to recount an awful situation that took place about 14 years ago in Huntington, West Virginia. A young woman who sat out to follow her dreams of journalism at Marshall University with the goal of making a difference in the world one day. But when a monster makes its appearance, that dream turns into a complete nightmare that she will never wake up from. This is the story of 21-year-old Leah Hickman. Leah was born on November 22nd of 1986 to parents Sherry Russell and Ron Hickman. She was Ron's only child, but Sherry did have another daughter from a previous marriage who was four years older than Leah, so... Leah had a half-sister she was raised with. Her name is Jessica Vickers. Sherry was married to Jessica's father, but those two divorced when she was two years old. Around a year later, Sherry married Ron, Leah's father, and soon after, the pair welcomed their little Leah into the world. Whether it was the age difference or just the normal sibling rivalry, the sisters didn't start to get close until they were older. The two fought like sisters normally do and didn't really begin relying on each other fully until they matured. As they became young adults, it seemed Leah and Jessica had more the other could relate to. They became best friends and each other's confidant. After eight years together, Sherry and Ron's marriage ended in divorce. Though, to a degree, Leah stayed selfless and full of love for both of her parents. And perhaps Jessica helped with that considering she knew what it was like you know, with her parents going through a divorce. Mm-hmm. The girls were raised in Leon, West Virginia, near the Ohio River community of Point Pleasant. It's there that Leah attended Christ Academy. It's a small Christian school that houses grades K through 12. She was very active within the school. She was in the choir. She played the trumpet in the band. And Leah was often in many of the school plays. She seemed to have been a role model to many of the younger children. She was so good with kids that many of them leaned on Leah for advice and help. In 2005, she graduated from Christ Academy with the dream of becoming a television reporter. After looking into numerous different colleges, she had decided to pack up from her home and move to Huntington, West Virginia, where she had enrolled to study journalism at Marshall University. After some thinking, Leah decided that she did not want to live on campus, and I don't blame her really. I never wanted to live on campus either. I always always thought that it would distract me from school if I did, but anyways. She finds an apartment on 8th Avenue that she would share with her sister. Now, I took the pleasure of going to my handy-dandy Google Maps, and according to that, her apartment was literally about a 10-minute walk or a 2- or 3-minute drive to the university. But when you choose to not live on campus, then you're going to have bills because rent ain't never been cheap. So Leah takes a part-time job at a nearby Sears department store. She works there for a while until later in 2007, Leah becomes a sales associate at a local dress barn in Barbersville, about 15 minutes away from her apartment. She begins her first semester of college in the fall of 2005, and it is everything Leah thought it would be. As her classes go on, they do nothing but reassure her that this is the career she was destined to go into. You see, Leah didn't just want to be your normal TV personality. 
She had come across some videos online that depicted animal abuse from these bigwig corporations. You know the ones I'm talking about. After crying her heart out over it, she wanted to reach out and work with the animal rights activist group for the ethical treatment of animals. Leah decided that day that when she became a reporter, she would reach out to them in the hopes of changing the world for the better. Leah was a girly girl. She loved makeup and fashion, just all things girly. She was also a good girl. She was focused on her schoolwork and stayed family oriented. She never got into really any trouble. I mean, her idea of a fun night was staying at home and having moving nights with her sister. Which I can relate to. Definitely. (laughs) Aside from movies, Leah loved America's Next Top Model, Arrested Development, and Friends. And I love Friends. I feel like that's all I need to know about you. So if you like to watch Friends, then we can be friends. (laughs) Moving forward. So it's no surprise that on December 14th of 2007, instead of going out partying or clubbing, as most young college students do... Leah decided to spend her Friday night at home. Earlier that day, Leah went to the mall with her sister before Jessica had to go into work that evening. At this point, classes were over and Christmas break was starting. Leah was planning to leave that next day, which would have been Saturday, to go home for the holidays. She called her mom that Friday afternoon and Sherry said she didn't recall anything unusual, that it was just a normal conversation and... Leah was just excited to go home for the holidays. Around 3 p.m., she called her father. She had just received her grades for that semester, and she was pretty pleased with them. She told her daddy that she missed him and that she couldn't wait to spend time with him when she came home. Around 3.30 p.m., Jessica came home for lunch really quick, and Leah was still at the apartment. The two talked about her good grades, her excitement for the holidays, and the fact that she had already started packing her bags. Jessica leaves Leah doing the dishes and heads back into work around four. And Benoist to her, this will be the last time that she will ever see her sister alive. At some point after Jessica left, Leah logged on to her MySpace. And if you don't know what MySpace was, then let me tell you. Just to put it simply, it was Facebook, but better. And that's all I'm going to say about it. At 5.40 p.m., Leah called and spoke to a friend. Before jumping off the phone, she told her friend that she was going to run and get something for dinner at McDonald's near her apartment, which was a six-minute drive. Then she was going to come back to do some laundry before she was to leave the next day. That phone call would be the last phone call made from Leah's phone. Leah runs to McDonald's, grabs a bite to eat, and makes it back to her apartment. At some point Friday evening, two of her friends, Roger Parker and Caitlin Starkey, along with her mother Sherry, tried calling Leah, but all three of them were met with her voicemail greeting. Caitlin left a voicemail, sure that Leah would call her back. That next day, which would have been Saturday, December 15th of 2007, Leah's mom tried calling her again. But this time, she was met with an automated message stating that Leah's voicemail was full and couldn't take any more messages at the time. This is when panic starts to set in on Sherry. You know, Leah was a good girl. She was always on time. She was always reliable. And she always got back to you, especially her family. 
When Sherry couldn't get a hold of Leah, she does what any mother of more than one kid would do. She calls Jessica and tells her to drive by the apartment to check on Leah. Now, Jessica never came home after work Friday because she was known to spend the night at her boyfriend's place on the weekends. At one in the afternoon on Saturday, Jessica stops by the apartment and as she pulls in, she sees Leah's yellow Chevy Cavalier parked outside. It isn't until Jessica walks into their apartment that she begins to feel unsettled. Inside, she finds Leah's purse, Leah's car keys, Leah's coat, and the McDonald's wrappings and the receipt for for that food that she got for dinner, which had the timestamp of 5.40 p.m. for that Friday. The bags that Leah had packed that Friday were still packed and in the same spots they were in previously. Feeling unsettled but not yet fearful, Jessica tries to get a hold of her sister. She tries to call Leah but is getting the same auto message their mom was, so she decides to post on Leah's MySpace wall saying, and I quote, Oh sister, where are you? Still not completely panicked like their mom, when Jessica discovers that Leah didn't show up at Dress Barn for her 5 p.m. shift that evening, she becomes aware of the severity of the situation that's at hand. And, and that's usually a common aspect, you know, for the family, you know, that she's actually missing. It seems a lot of friends or family can have this sense of denial at the beginning mm-hmm. uh, until something like missing a shift at work, which they're usually, you know, very reliable sets in. It's like a confirmation that the, the others are thinking the worst, too. Yeah, I can see that. Well, Leah's co-workers and manager were instantly worried for her. They've all been stated saying that Leah was always on time. She was never late, and even when she thought she was going to be a little late, she would always call and let someone know. This was really out of character for Leah. On Sunday, December 16th of 2007, Leah's mom, Sherry, files a missing persons report at the Huntington Police Department. The report was taken seriously immediately, and Sergeant John Williams took the lead on the investigation. Officers taped off the apartment complex and began a search of the premises. Once there, it was noted Leah had exactly six coats, and it seemed one was missing. A brown coat with a fur collar. Leah's cell phone was nowhere to be found at the apartment or in her car, so authorities also contacted her cell phone service provider. They were then informed that after Leah had made that phone call to her friend at 540, her phone showed no activity. It actually never pinged at all after that call, which leaves the question, was her cell phone dead or had it been turned off? West Virginia State Police ended up aiding Huntington PD with the case. They bring in a bloodhound in an attempt to track Leah's scent, but the bloodhound only traces it to her car before it ends. After a couple of days of searching, police hadn't come up with anything and were basically back at square one. Leah's family and friends, they didn't just sit back, though, and wait for police to come up with answers. They were quick to place missing signs of Leah all over the area and campus. They took to news outlets and social media as well. They spoke to anyone who would listen. Leah Hickman ends up making national news on December 19th of 2007, when her sister Jessica ends up appearing on MSNBC to tell her sister's story and ask for help in finding her. 
It's that appearance that causes multiple other major news outlets like Fox and CNN to pick up Leah's story. On December 20th, Huntington PD Sergeant John Williams, along with Jessica, appear on the Nancy Grace show. It's during this telecast that Jessica admits the two would often leave the back door open while they would do their laundry. Now, you can actually see this building online. It's a pretty big building that has four units, two upstairs and two downstairs. Mm -hmm. Jessica and Leah's unit was one of the units on the first floor, I think. Yeah. And to my understanding, the laundry room was in the basement of the complex. Yeah, there there was a stairwell in the back of the complex that, you know, led from the top apartments and then, you know, the bottom floor that had Leah and Jessica's and then it went down to the basement where the laundry room was. So they're probably on the bottom floor. Mm-hmm. So I'd say they were just a few steps away from the laundry room. Mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have thought to have locked it either. I, I probably wouldn't have either. Marley's Doghouse, a local bar that was frequently visited by Marshall's students, set up a benefit concert for 9 p.m. on December 21st to help raise reward money for information that would lead to Leah's return. Little did they know that Leah would be returning in a body bag. Around 8 o'clock that evening, word of mouth was that the authorities at Leah's apartment were getting ready to make an important announcement. Local news outlets and curious folk were quick to make way to the complex. Police scheduled a press conference for 9 p.m., and while the clock ticked, gossip of it not being good news would soon be proven true. When it did strike 9, Lieutenant Rocky Johnson announced that they had discovered a body that they believed to be that of Leah Hickman. Later on December 24th, that body would be ID'd as Leah's. Authorities discovered her body in a crawl space in the basement off from the laundry room. It had not been closed or blocked off during the investigation. According to investigators, her body was wrapped in plastic and pushed into a section of the crawl space that was not in plain sight. Authorities had to fish a light through to even see her. As her autopsy was performed, the medical examiner determined that Leah had most likely been dead since the day she went missing on December 14th. There were no signs of sexual abuse, and Leah's cause of death was ruled strangulation. It's that detail that gave police the thought that this had to be personal. And strangulation usually is a sign of that because of how long it takes. And more times than not, you're usually looking them in the eye while you do it. Yeah. It could take as little as 10 seconds for someone to pass out, and and as long as 6 minutes for them to die from it. Mm -hmm. And that's a long time to be manually choking someone. Keeping that constant pressure, lack of oxygen, and on top of that, you're face-to-face just watching the life drain out from someone's eyes. When a murder is committed that horrendous, it's usually personal, because it takes a lot of anger and a lot of rage to see it through. Mm -hmm. Police also think that the murderer was no stranger. The fact that whoever did this knew the layout of the complex led police to believing they had to have been in the building before. The crawl space was not easily seen, so it made more sense that it was someone who had been there before, someone who would have noticed it. On top of that, this is a pretty small crawl space. From what I've read, it was around like 18 to 20 inches wide. Which again would lead me to believe that it was personal. Mm -hmm. If it's that small... I would say it took some strength and determination to get her pushed back up in there. Yeah, me too. But with a hiding place that small, 
it can also lead to evidence being left behind from the person placing it there. Was there any DNA? There was DNA evidence collected at the time, though it turned out to be mitochondrial DNA. Police sent it off anyways to be tested in Arizona, but it came back inconclusive. There just wasn't enough of it. Out of the four units in the complex, only two of them were actually occupied. One of them obviously being by Jessica and Leah. And the second one was occupied by a man who was confirmed to have been out of town at the time of Leah's disappearance. He was actually in Columbus, Ohio, visiting his family. Investigators were finally able to track down the building's owner who lived in Florida. His name was Edward Jackson. According to Mr. Jackson, there had been maintenance men working on the building at the time of Leah's disappearance. They had been hired for some routine maintenance and to replace a hot water heater. Even though police never came out and named a suspect, they were and are adamant that they do have a person of interest. According to investigators, out of the hundreds of tips and leads that they have been given, there has been one name that has stayed consistent within them, but that they lack any physical evidence to be able to prosecute beyond a shadow of a doubt. The dress barn where Leah worked donated $10,000 to pay for her funeral expenses. And on December 29th of 2007, Leah Nicole Hickman's funeral was held at the West Virginia National Guard Armory in Point Pleasant. More than 2,000 people attended to pay their respects and mourn the loss of a life lost too soon. Memorial flowers, cards, and photos of Leah decorated the armory. She was laid to rest at the Forest Hills Cemetery located in Mason County. It has now been 14 years since the life of Leah Hickman was taken, and although the investigation has seemingly come to a halt, Police are quick to make it known that this case is anything but cold. They're hopeful that as time goes on, DNA research will develop further, so much so that the DNA they hold will be able to be easily tested. And to a degree, it looks that way. I mean, Parabon Nano Labs have had great success with testing mitochondrial DNA so far. Leah's dad, Ron, has read up on them, and he has asked numerous times for Huntington Police Department to send that DNA off to Nano Labs. but at this point, authorities are just too hesitant to, to lose everything they have and not get anything in return. And, and I can understand that. I mean, unfortunately, it's a hard decision for any of us to make in these types of situations. Mm-hmm. Science is constantly changing, and it's, it's always moving forward and getting better. But if that's the only evidence you have... Do you want to risk that much, you know, in losing it all? It's better to have something than not nothing. It seems it's the only definite clue that they have. Mm -hmm. Although police haven't given the public any more clues as to who or what they believe happened to Leah, that hasn't stopped the community and Leah's peers from conspiring their thoughts. After digging through some Reddit, web sleuths, and my desk space, I have unveiled the three major theories that most have. The first theory is that Jessica's ex-boyfriend, Matthew McClung, murdered Leah. According to those who knew the couple, he was a shady man. Some say he dabbled in steroids or drugs and that he was controlling, he was abusive, and he was unfaithful. Matt was a soldier in the military, and before heading out to Iraq, Jessica broke up with him. 
Now, according to those same sources, Matt and Leah never got along. She was supposedly, you know, your typical sister, and she wasn't going to like or care for someone who made her sister feel anything but happy. Apparently, when he did make it to Iraq, Jessica and Leah packed up all of his crap and put it in the basement. At the time of Leah's disappearance, he had just got back from deployment. Matt was supposedly to have gone to Leah's complex to pick up what belongings he had there. He also apparently had an injured arm the day after Leah went missing. Now, those who run with this theory theorize that Matthew went to the complex to get his things, and as he enters the basement, he runs into Leah. The two have an exchange of words, and in a heated rage, Matt strangles Leah. In a panic to hide her after he realizes what he's done, Matt rushes into one of the empty units and grabs some plastic that's left from the maintenance crew to wrap Leah up and discard her in the crawl space. And that sounds plausible. I mean, he had been at the apartment plenty of times, I'm guessing, so he Mm -hmm. would have a knowledge of the building and the layout. Uh, He supposedly wasn't a good boyfriend, Mm -hmm. and as most siblings who care for each other, I would say Leah and him probably did not get along. He could blame her for the breakup, and that could cause enough rage for him to want Leah to feel the pain that he was feeling. Mm-hmm. The second theory is that Leah's sister, Jessica, is actually the perpetrator. Rumors swirled around for a while that the two were distant towards one another. Some peers have spoken out about the sisters' alleged bickering and fighting, and many claim that the love that Leah had for her sister wasn't reciprocated. It's been whispered that Jessica talked behind Leah's back and had made it obvious to a few of her friends. Now, they deep dive into gossip, saying that Jessica had always been jealous of her sister, she was jealous of her grades, she was jealous of her hard work, and, you know, just jealous of the all-around type of person Leah was. Those who choose to believe this theory theorize that Jessica had planned Leah's murder for a while, or had at least thought about it. And when the time arose she pounced. Supposedly, when Jessica came home for lunch that day, she did not leave her sister doing the dishes. These theorists believe that the pair either A, bickered slash argued, and it escalated to Jessica choking her sister, or B, she just decided to go for it and strangles Leah. She then would have proceeded to run into one of the empty units to grab the plastic left behind by the maintenance crew, to wrap Leah up and then proceeds to place her in the crawl space. I'm not saying that it couldn't be possible, but I think there's just too many holes in that theory. Mm-hmm. You have too many people, family and friends, who claim their sisters were actually close. Yeah. Uh, bickering like siblings do and loathing for one another are two different things. Yes, she would have known the layout of the building, but would she have had the strength to have carried Leah and shove her into that crawl space? Most importantly, I don't think 30 minutes would have been enough time to have come home for lunch, kill your sister, wrap her up, put her in the basement, and then go back to work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have co-workers who can vouch what time she made it back to work. Plus, you have a boyfriend that can vouch you know, when she left for work and then came straight to his place. Mm-hmm. The third theory is that it was indeed someone on that maintenance staff. According to reports, the crew had been there quite a bit doing odd end jobs for Mr. Jackson. They obviously would have known the layout of the complex and would have known about the crawl space. Many believe that one of the crew members had an obsession with Leah. 
weeks of stalking her without any notice could have resulted in easy prey. If he worked there long enough, he could have picked up on the girl's schedules, known Leah was going to be alone and took a shot. He could have asked her out or made an advance towards her. You know, maybe she rejected him and he grew angry. One thing leading to another, and before you know it, he's stuffing Leah in the crawl space. And this is a plausible theory, too. He also would have had access to any tools and materials, such as the plastic. Mm-hmm. He would have access to the building and the units at any time. I also want to add that anyone on the maintenance crew could have hit out in any one of those empty units. Mm-hmm. You know how thin the walls are in apartment complexes. Mm-hmm. He could have easily been listening to Jessica and Leah for God knows how much time. The only thing that makes me question that is the fact that there was no sexual abuse. Usually when a stalker commits murder under the premise that I believe this theory falls under, uh, there's sexual abuse. Whether it happens before or after the death, it's there. Being rejected would cause the rage we're looking for, but if the murder is being committed because of being turned down, then we'd assume that we'd find evidence of abuse. Usually rape is fueled by rage of what the rapist believes they deserve. Now, I'm not saying it's not possible, but more times than not, you would have seen it in this instance. For years, Leah's case stood stagnant. The community was left upset that Leah's killer was still walking free. In 2014, someone had spray-painted on the side of Leah's apartment complex the words, Who Killed Leah Hickman? The current building owner announced a reward for whoever would come forward and name the person behind the graffiti, but even with the cash reward, no one came forward. Police have still not released any more clues to the public of what they believe happened to Leah. And as it goes many times, it seems that until we get answers, we're left to wonder what truly happened December 14th, 2007 on 8th Avenue. If you have any information regarding Leah Hickman's murder, we urge you to contact Huntington Police Department's Criminal Investigation Bureau at 304-696-4420 or the tip line at 304-696-4444. Again, I'm your host, Gabrielle. And I'm Alan. We'll talk next week. You can find our source materials and reference photos for each episode on our website, theeerietouch.com. You can listen to this podcast on most platforms. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram for new leads and updates. And we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to your podcast on. It could really help us out.